In the year 1933, a young woman named Mary was hospitalized at a sanitarium near Seattle. She'd just turned 18, and she was dying of tuberculosis. At first, we didn't know much about Mary beyond those facts. But one thing stood out. She was Sami, the indigenous people of Norway, Finland, Sweden, and parts of Russia. That spring, Mary died, without her family beside her. But one person was there, a doctor named Charles Firestone. On the day he signed her death certificate, Firestone sent off a telegram to one of the most prominent research institutions in the world, the U.S. National Museum. Today, a large part of that museum is now known as the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. In his telegram, Firestone offered something remarkable, Mary's brain. He wrote that if a Sami brain was of interest to the museum, that he could, quote, obtain one today. A man named Alice Herdlichka replied the same day. Herdlichka was a world-famous anthropologist at the Smithsonian. He was also a collector of body parts. Herdlichka said that he wanted Mary's brain. He telegrammed back only seven words. If the subject full blood, brain desirable. Probably most people, when they walk into the Smithsonian, have no idea that the collection has over 30,000 sets of human remains. And that most people that I tell that to are shocked. You know, people have uh, been aware of it. They've asked about it. We've never had any, any uh, reason to hide it. What he's done to indigenous people has been pure evil. He's left us with a really difficult legacy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Monday, August 14th. I'm Nicole Dunka. And I'm Claire Healy. Today, we are bringing you the story of Mary and what happened to her brain. It's not like she was an orphan. She had a mother and father who doted on her. I mean, they doted on her. This is the story of how Mary and tens of thousands of people had their body parts collected by the Smithsonian's U.S. National Museum. It's the story of how the Smithsonian's premier museum gathered its racial brain collection and how they've kept it for the last century. More than a hundred years after this brain collection began, the Washington Post has pieced together the most extensive look at this work to date. And over the next two days on Post Reports, we're bringing you the details of this reporting and of Alice Herdlichka's troubling legacy. It's just an eye-opener for me to know that even though my mother's side were an indigenous tribe from another part of the world, that they still suffered. They were treated like animals. I'm I'm so glad we can talk. I've been working on this for about five months in researching the 1904 World's Fair and people who died there. um. When we first started reporting this story, I spoke with the Smithsonian to try and understand this collection. I got in touch with Lori Burgess, who was, at the time, the Associate Chair of Anthropology at the National Museum of Natural History. I explained that I first heard of this collection while I was looking into the 1904 World's Fair. 
A source had told me that brains were taken from indigenous peoples put on display at the fair. Have you seen the brains and know their exact location today? I haven't seen them because we know where they are. Everything in our collections is itemized down to, for objects, it's itemized down to drawer and cabinet. I began to research the brain collection and found an article by one of the foremost anthropologists of the 20th century, Alice Herdlichka, where he talked about the museum's collection of hundreds of brains. My first thoughts were, are they still there? Who did these brains belong to, and why couldn't I find more information on this? The way we look at it now is they, they were named individuals. Everyone in our collection had a name, but given the circumstances and the era of colonization and colonialism through which they came to us, we don't know their names anymore. Officials from the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, which now holds the brains in its storage facility, shared some of their records with me. And from them, I learned that the Smithsonian had amassed more than 260 brains, taken not only from people who died at the fair, but from people across the globe. I began looking for any identifying information for anyone in the collection. So many people weren't named in the files, but some people were, and one was Mary. Mary's brain was sent from Seattle to Washington, D.C., wrapped in cotton. When it got to the National Museum, her brain was tagged with a number, labeled and likely stored in the Smithsonian's Natural History Building on the National Mall. Mary herself was largely a mystery to me. We didn't have much information. We knew her accession number, 131825. But we didn't even really know her last name. The name in the museum's records looked like Mary Sarai, with an I at the end. Still, I couldn't stop trying to picture her. She was a young woman, only 18 when she died. She was Sami, so I knew her family was indigenous Scandinavian, but I didn't know why she was in Seattle. Mary stood out from the Smithsonian's hundreds of records because we had her name. We could only find recorded names for less than a third of the brain collection— and far fewer for the brains taken in the U.S. I was convinced we could find her story with the details we had, her name, age, and where she died. And I really wanted to know, why did her brain become a part of this collection in the first place? What what is your um, direct work with the human brains collection? What would be your... What are you holding in your hand here? It's a skull. Oh. It's a skull. I think it's upside, but it's... um. Yeah, it's like upside down. At the time we started looking into this, there wasn't much out there about these brains housed in the Smithsonian. So we started investigating. How, how often do you end up working with human remains? Uh, not at all. And all we got were these small pieces of a larger picture. So I remember one time specifically being shown the brain collection, and I recall it being in a, a large medium to large size silver bin. We talked to some experts, anthropologists, and historians, and even a curator of biological anthropology at the Smithsonian, Sabrina Schultz. So I don't study the human brain collection or do any research on it. Nobody here now has. 
This is one of our, what we call legacy collections, created long before any of us were even alive. The Smithsonian's legacy collection, something the museum had started decades ago, it seemed like no one had publicly documented the full scope of the brain collection. And what's more, outside of the Smithsonian, there were only a select group of people who ever actually saw this collection. I've seen it. Really? When? A long time ago. No one seemed to know the extent of what the Smithsonian had done. Including the Smithsonian. They would be together. We would group brains together. But I don't believe we have that many in our collections, although I can certainly check with our biological anthropology folks and get an answer for you. That would be great. Last year, Claire first started asking museum officials about their collection. That's when she spoke with Lori Burgess. Lori sent us a spreadsheet listing the brains in the Smithsonian's collection. As we dug, we started putting together a better picture of how this human brain collection began. The person behind the collection, the person who acquired Mary's brain, was Alice Herdlichka. Alice Herdlichka is a fascinating, complicated, dark, nasty individual. By contemporary accounts, as well as my own personal perspective is that this is not the type of individual that you would have wanted to spend time with. This is Samuel J. Redman. He's a history professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He wrote the book on the human remains that U.S. museums have collected over time. It's called Bone Rooms. A lot of it was focused on the legacy of Herdlichka, the Smithsonian's first curator of the Division of Physical Anthropology. He um, was single-mindedly obsessed with collecting bodies and body parts for the Smithsonian Institution. I think that that's a really critical component of how all this comes together. Herdlichka was born in Bohemia in 1869, the modern-day Czech Republic. At an early age, he immigrated to the U.S., where he would later train to be a medical doctor. Throughout his career, he would bring that medical expertise into the field of anthropology. In one of his first jobs at a New York State hospital, he decided to systematically study human variations, how patients were different physically and anatomically. He became obsessed with measuring everything about humans, and he'd target populations that often wouldn't or couldn't give consent. One study from 1898 measured nearly 1,000 white and black children from juvenile asylums in New York. He said he wanted to take measurements of children who were, quote, abnormal. He compared their skull size, the shape of their ears, the size of their genitals. And what he studied was often about the physical differences between races. Here's Sam again. So he's looking for objects which he thinks have some permanence to them and that can unlock an element of human history and also race, importantly, primarily, in fact, race. The U.S. was preoccupied with theories about race. It was the late 19th century and eugenics at this time was becoming more popular. People were advocating for forced sterilization to make sure certain groups, 
like people with mental illness, didn't have children. Herdlichka was a member and advisor of the American Eugenics Society, and people like President Theodore Roosevelt supported the eugenics movement. It wasn't uncommon for prominent leaders to believe in a racial hierarchy. We looked through Herdlichka's letters and personal correspondence, his speeches, his articles. He believed that understanding racial hierarchy was hugely important to the country's politics, identity, and the ultimate success of the country. His hierarchy, of course, put white people at the top. He at one point refers to African-Americans as capable of 80% of the typical white individual. So there's a very real scientific racism hierarchy of human achievement in terms of his viewpoint. So we know now that race is a social construct. And even later in life, Herdlichka would admit to newspaper reporters that physiological differences of race were only skin deep. But at the same time, he would say evolution made it so that all races weren't equal. And beyond his views on race, there were other things that the scientific community admired Herdlichka for. To many, he was known as the father of physical anthropology. It's not clear when Herdlichka first began looking at human remains as the key to measuring racial difference. But we do know that in 1902, he went to the site of a massacre of Yaqui natives in Mexico. According to Herdlichka's own publications and investigations by anthropologists, it was at this site that Herdlichka decapitated bodies left after the massacre and took the remains of at least a dozen people to the American Museum of Natural History in New York. This is the first time we really see him taking bodies in this way. Herdlichka was not the only person collecting human remains like this, especially at this time. This was a common practice for museums and research institutions. Anthropologists would often take body parts like skulls or even exhumed skeletons, and they often preyed upon Native American communities. We also know that the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum still has over 30,000 body parts in storage. The museum estimates that at least half of these remains are from Native communities. Most of the collection was acquired through the early 20th century. Alice Herdlichka would turn out to be a key player in these acquisitions. After the break, how Herdlichka built a racial brain collection at the Smithsonian. We'll be right back. In 1903, Herdlichka began a new chapter in Washington, D.C. He got hired to set up the Division of Physical Anthropology at the United States National Museum. There's this black-and-white photo of Herdlichka from when he started at the Smithsonian. It's a staff photo in front of one of the buildings. Everyone looks serious. The men are in three-piece suits, and two women are wearing these wide-brimmed hats. Herdlichka has a mustache and deep-set eyes. He's holding his hands together in front of him. It was around this time when he began looking for brains to collect. He started in the Smithsonian's backyard, Washington, D.C. He asked a top Smithsonian official to put him in touch with local doctors, heads of medical schools, and morgues. He also focused on D.C.'s anatomical board, 
the government agency that received bodies from places like hospitals, jails, or asylums. It was responsible for people whose bodies hadn't been claimed or whose families couldn't afford to bury them. That's how Herdlichka began building what he called a racial brain collection. Herdlichka was a leading proponent of racial typology, right? This idea that humans could be classified into different races on the basis of biology. This is Sabrina Schultz. She's a curator of biological anthropology at the Smithsonian. She said brains were particularly interesting to Herdlichka because they're one of the most important organs distinguishing humans from animals. And so he thought the anatomical descriptions and comparisons of human brains, which he and others, his contemporaries, published, might show racial differences. That is not an ideology. That is not reflective of how race is understood now, you know, and how human variation is understood as continuous and not typological. In 1904, Herdlichka went public with his quest for human brains for the Smithsonian. He published a guide on how to obtain and preserve human remains for museums. And just a warning, it's pretty graphic. He began with grim guidelines for categorizing remains. Quote, the whites and other civilized peoples versus those among primitive peoples. He laid out every step to take the brains how to send them. Quote, the specimen could be sent well covered in cotton at once, he wrote. But the better way is to send it after eight days, when it is already hardened. Where to find them? In the Philippines and other United States dependencies, the opportunity is favorable. He even had directions for sending the brains back to the National Museum, depending on the weather. In winter, a head can be sent as it is, after being covered by cotton saturated with 10% formalin. And if you wanted to hide the fact that an autopsy was done, he also had instructions for that. The marks of the autopsy may be obliterated by making several opposite holes in the two parts of the skull with a drill. Wire or tie the parts together and sew the scalp with a small continuous stitch, combing the hair over all. Quote, in that manner, the signs left are less than those after some scalp wounds or operations. When it came to giving tutorials on how to harvest brains, his manual was the YouTube of its day. In 1904, Herdlichka would begin acquiring brains himself from outside D.C. In April of that year, St. Louis hosted the World's Fair. And there was an exhibit meant to showcase the indigenous people of the Philippines, including the Igorot people. These were different groups of indigenous people who lived in the Cordillera Mountains of Luzon. At this time, anthropologists were obsessed with indigenous Filipinos, believing they were an important focal point in evolutionary history. Filipinos traveled to St. Louis for different reasons. Some said they went for an adventure, but others later said they didn't know why they were going to the U.S., Herdlichka knew that the World's Fair would be an opportunity to add to his collection. Planners of the fair knew that not all of the indigenous people would survive the long journey or the fair itself. After some people died, they plotted out a field in St. Louis that could hold 40 graves. 
Herdlichka went to the World's Fair and described in a letter taking part of the brain of a young Suyok Igoro individual, likely a woman named Mauda, who was part of the Konkanai people. He chose to take the cerebellum, we don't know why. He packed it up and brought it back to D.C., along with another indigenous Filipino's brain. These were the first brains he had collected outside of D.C., and the first from indigenous people. Soon, Herdlichka expanded his network, and the brains arrived at the Smithsonian from all over the world. The military supplied them, scientists and doctors at asylums. Herdlichka and the National Museum reimbursed the cost of transport. This was a pattern. These people didn't appear to give their consent to their brains being taken. In fact, records for only four brains out of more than 260 showed that the individual or their family had willingly donated their organs. For everyone else, we couldn't find records that showed any consent. Their families didn't appear to know. But doctors at universities like Johns Hopkins, Tulane, University of Maryland, and others in Germany and the Philippines, they would all give these brains to the Smithsonian. When we asked schools about the brains, officials said they could find no records about them, or they said the universities have very different standards for organ donation today. So many of the brains were taken from indigenous communities, communities with burial rites and religious teachings about the afterlife. This kind of brain pillaging violated their sacred beliefs. For the Igoro woman named Mauda, she was brought to the U.S. for an exhibition, and records suggest that her cerebellum was taken without her consent. For Mauda's Kankanai community, that her family was not allowed to bury her whole body, it meant she wasn't able to be at peace. As we found out more about Mauda, I was thinking of Mary. Mary and Mauda, two young women, from indigenous peoples on two opposite sides of the world. And both of them had their brains taken by the Smithsonian. Had you ever seen the brains? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're in jars in, in the labs. I mean, I, I just went into the room and saw them and looked at the labels and didn't really spend much time. Patricia Fable is an indigenous anthropologist from the Philippines who worked at the Smithsonian in the 90s. Her family is also from the Cordillera region like Mauda. And for years, Patricia had studied the Filipinos who went to the World's Fair. Over the years, I worked in, in, in labs where, you know, snakes were pickled in jars. And, and so that wasn't the part that horrified me you know what horrified you just the fact i think that there were all of these parts of people that were sitting in in labs everywhere and i i know that this wasn't the only museum where where it is where it's true She's one of the few people we talk to that have seen this collection up close. I was standing there and I said, in fact, I started speaking in my grandmother's language. What did you say? I said something like, you know, you're here. (laughs) But you see, at that time, I also wanted to 
think about all the other Filipinos whose brains were in that lab. Because I realized that, because it was a question that had come up with other museum people. And I must say, you know, a lot of things in the museum that are like that, people will have to reckon with at some point or other, because, you know, for some reason or other, I mean, they're, for one thing, they're taking up a lot of space. <laughs> but they also don't know what to do with them. What responsibility does the Smithsonian have now for its human remains? Only in the last few decades has the idea of repatriation gained traction. That is, the idea of sending these human remains back to their communities, to their tribes. In 1989, Congress passed the National Museum of American Indian Act. That required the Smithsonian to inventory its Native American human remains, including Native Alaskan communities as well as Native Hawaiian communities. The act required the Smithsonian to then notify federally recognized tribes who could start the process of repatriation. So far, the Smithsonian says it has offered to repatriate about 6,000 sets of human remains related to Native tribes and communities. For many of the other Native American remains, the museum hasn't concluded which tribes they're from. And even if the museum did successfully repatriate all of its remains from Native American tribes, they'd still have more than 15,000 left from other communities, like Black Americans or from countries outside the U.S., And there are no federal laws that require the Smithsonian to tell those communities. So that puts descendants of the people in this collection in a strange position. Currently, the responsibility for requesting these remains has largely been placed on the descendants or their communities. They have to reach out to the Smithsonian and they have to ask them to repatriate. But how would they ask for these remains back if they didn't even know the remains were taken in the first place? What does the institution owe these people? I think it has to become a statement of its history. Whether, you know, whether you want to apologize about it or not. People don't know what to do with these things, you know. And yet, they don't feel, they don't feel they can just give them away to who wants them. Because they feel that they have to belong to somebody specific. And I think that that is what happened when uh, groups of uh, Igor descendants in this country started asking at the Smithsonian about these brains, you know. And, and the Smithsonian's only answer was, is if you can find us the direct descendants, we will be glad to give it to them. As we learned all of this, we dug deeper into the status of the collection today and all the other human remains in the museum. How many brains did the Smithsonian still have? Where did they keep them? What condition were they in? Most importantly, who were these people in the Smithsonian's collection? And did their families know what happened to them? We asked Lori Burgess about this last year right before she became co-chair of the Natural History Museum's Department of Anthropology. You know, within the internal database, or aside from it, are there breakdowns 
that you have and, and the museum knows of how many remains are international, how many are from where, or, you know, if there's any other racial collections in this way, is there, you know, internally a breakdown in an understanding of all those demographics? I don't think there's a racial breakdown because I know you had asked about counts of non-Indigenous remains um, based on demographics. And I think at this point, the best I could give you was a geographic breakdown. Given the time periods that the remains came in, um, different groups were called different things at different time periods. And sometimes the people who collected them didn't use their traditional name. And now we try to use traditional names. So in terms of that, I don't think we have anything Breaking it down demographically would be difficult, not impossible, but difficult. In the summer of 2022, when I first requested to see how and where the brain collection was stored, the Smithsonian declined. They sent a spreadsheet of all of the brains they had, but it only had information like where they were collected and what year. It also included something called an accession number. These numbers corresponded to actual accession cards they had for these brains. These cards are created with each new acquisition and linked to files that describe the brains, when they were collected by the Smithsonian, and sometimes included letters from the people who sent the brains to Herdlichka. Some of the letters named the people whose brains were in the collection. Others only included descriptions like race, sex, or the location they were taken from, sometimes using derogatory language. From reviewing the spreadsheet and these accession files, we found out that the Smithsonian had collected over 260 brains from around the world. In the fall, after we started asking the Smithsonian questions about the brains, they inventoried the collection. We know that today, 255 of them sit in storage containers in Suitland, Maryland, in a massive research complex. We looked everywhere for the names of the people in the collection but the names were missing for most of them in the records we reviewed. At least 74 brains came from the Washington, D.C. area, the largest regional group overall. And out of the brains that had details about race or national origin, the largest demographic was made up of brains taken from Black people who died in the U.S. All right, so what should I start you off with? Um, let's see. So I have... Should I get so we have to have these gloves, so I think it's so we don't get fingerprints and stuff. Yeah, they're very old. And The Smithsonian said it did have the names of some of the people whose brains were taken from D.C., but they wouldn't release them, citing privacy concerns. So we had to go with the information on the accession records. Some of them did know which hospitals the brains were taken from and around what day. So we went to the DC archives to try to identify these people. So which ones do we want to start with? You went through the whole up till 15, right? Yeah. So let's see. The DC archives have death certificates dating as far back as the 1870s, and they're open to the public. Because one of these says newborn and another says fetus. But we found Almost nothing. So he might have just been sloppy with the recording. We found but likely matches. There were death certificates that generally lined up with the day the Smithsonian officially took possession of the brain. Some even contained notes that their bodies were given to the D.C. Anatomical Board, which we knew Herdlichka had targeted for human remains. 
but we couldn't be sure. And at the same time, we kept looking for Mary. We thought her last name was Sarai, so we started looking for records of a Mary Sarai in Seattle with Sami connections. I tried searching death records, Ancestry.com, census records. No matches. Even if we did find her descendants, would they be alive and remember her? Marlene, are you the founder of the the Sami Cultural Center? I know you're the current chair. You're one of the founders. Yeah, yeah. We started reaching out to Sami heritage groups, thinking that they could help pinpoint Mary's family and where they came from. But I can't find, I haven't been able to find documentation of that. So I'm hoping that in the Sara um, file that there might be more information about that. The Sami Cultural Center of North America told us they had never heard of a Sarai, but they did say Sara was a well-known Sami family who is still around. The Sara family, you know, was was a, a is a well-known family in Sami, in the Sami homelands, originating in Norway. I think most of them are located in Norway. And then, yes, I'm Nicole. Oh, uh, Nice to meet you, girl, uh, reporters. (laughs) Okay, let's see. This meeting is recorded. We made a breakthrough. I have a picture I could show you right now, too. Of Mary? Of of her and... uh, uh, We would love to see them. Here's a picture of Mary in Seattle. I don't know if you Oh, my gosh. Oh, Oh, my gosh. uh, I should take it out of the... It's It's such a beautiful photo. I'm so glad you have it. Next time on Post Reports, the end of our search for Mary and the start of a reckoning for the Smithsonian. My goal is you never erase history, but you help people understand what that history tells us about the Smithsonian. It tells us about the way we treated people, and it should be a guide to make sure we never treat people that way again. That's tomorrow in the second half of our reporting on the Smithsonian's racial brain collection. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Claire Healy. And I'm Nicole Dunka. Today's show was produced by Rena Flores with production assistance from Lucas Trevor. It was mixed by Sam Baer. It was edited by Monica Campbell and David Vallis with additional editing by Sarah Childress Lucy Perkins, and Casey Shaper. Thanks to Ariel Plotnick and Aaron Weiner, Regine Cabato, Alice Kreitz, Magda Jean-Louis, Monica Mather, Nate Jones, and Andrew Botran of The Washington Post contributed to this report. Alexander Fernandez, Nami Hijikata, Solen Guarinos, and Lalani Pedris of the American University Washington Post Practicum Program also contributed. If you want to learn more about our reporting on the Smithsonian's collection, you can check out WashingtonPost.com. We'll be releasing more stories throughout the week, including an illustrated narrative about Mauda, the indigenous Filipino woman from the 1904 World's Fair. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. <laughs>